The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Oh, Luna, how do you get so high? Welcome to Why We Are Here with empowerment coach, energy healer, and visionary author Sharon Rose Washington. Why We Are Here is a portal of heartfelt communication designed to inspire you with expansive words of wisdom, personal insight, and open candor from luminary guests around the world. Now, here's your host, Sharon Rose Washington. Hello, and welcome to Why We Are Here. I'm your host, Sharon Rose Washington. You have now entered into that comfortable atmosphere where luminaries from around the world join us to share their findings and opinions. My guest today, Jeff Kutosh, is an entrepreneurial business icon with over 25 years of experience in setting trends in the world of entertainment. I was introduced to Jeff several months ago by a major music producer writer named Harvey Scales. Jeff Kutosh is a man of multiple accomplishments and talent. He is a Golden Globe winner and an Emmy winner. As a choreographer, his moves have been passed on to and reinforced by many high-profile names. Now, among the well-known list of artists, and are you ready for this, is the never-forgotten Elvis Presley. Also, the iconic John Travolta, charismatic Tom Jones, and, okay, the celebrated one and only Michael Jackson. Jeff Kutosh has a rich legacy in television, film, and stage, and we're honored to have him here on our show. May I introduce Mr. Jeff Kutosh? Hello, Jeff. Welcome Hi, to Sharon. Why, welcome to why we are here. Well, thank you for having me. Now I know You're, why I'm here. <laughs> well, that's a question I'll, I'll I'll ask later. You know, on a on a larger scale. But you're an innovator of dance. You're one of the iconic uh, people who brought in a lot of freestyle dance. You come from a world of break dance and and uh, other contemporary um, street type dancing. But you also are a mainstay in the world of supper club choreography. Let's let's go back. Let's go all the way back to little Jeff Kutosh. Where were you raised? And tell me what that was like. Well, I was raised in Cleveland, Ohio, and um, which was is the course, as you probably know, the uh, home of rock and roll. It's the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and that's where the the term was coined by the disc jockey Alan Freed. And I grew up in a rock and roll world, listening to music and dancing. And we were one of the cities that w- w- became a dance capital of. Uh, of the USA back in those days in the 60s it was you know the street dances the um, maybe a hundred different dances in a period of about five or six years starting with the jitterbug and then the twist and and at that time Dick Clark was doing American Bandstand and the whole country was dancing um, 
social dancing, and it was the first time that uh, not only did the young kids kind of take over the rock and roll world, but also it was the beginning of the African-American and the uh, the white kids dancing together for the first time ever on television. So I jumped into that fray, and I loved going to dance contests, and I put myself through college. I went to Ohio State University. I spent a year winning dance contests in order to save enough money up to go to college. So I was always a dance kid, but it was always street dancing, and it just made it up. I never took a dance lesson. That's what I wanted to ask you, because... Um in the idea of knowing that the type of, of of dance that you've contributed, that's what's so amazing, is that you never took a lesson. Well, I'm at Ohio State University, and I would go on Friday nights to the 7-Eleven Club, and I would do the alligator and the funky chicken and the penguin and all these crazy dances and win money to keep myself, my room and board uh, going. And uh, I attended a James Brown concert. And it was the first time I'd ever seen James Brown. This is circa 1967, 66, 67. And I'm watching this guy do the most amazing dancing I'd ever seen before. And I went home that night and I put my hands between the doorstops of the the entrance to my bedroom. And I'm trying to do the mashed potatoes (laughs) like James Brown did. And I and I from that point on I couldn't stop. I didn't want to be a dentist anymore, so I went back to Cleveland, uh, and uh, that summer on vacation, and I'm watching a TV show, a dance TV show, called The Upbeat Show, and you know it was it was kind of like a you know a Dick Clark show. They it was all the major acts that would come in. They perform live. And uh, But they had a dance troupe on the show, and they were terrible. So I called up the producer, and I said, you know, what you guys are doing is really lame. You ought to be doing what's happening in the streets. And the guy says to me, well, who are you? I said, I'm just a fan. He said, why don't you come on down here and show me what you're talking about? So I drive downtown to the Scripps Howard station. I walk in the guy's office, the producer. I jump on his desk, and I start doing the James Brown. And papers are flying, and he says, oh, my goodness. He said, you're just what I've been looking for. Do you want to be my choreographer? And I said, sure. And I didn't even know what the word meant. And I said, uh, okay. He said, well, you have to audition. So at that time, I had three, four girlfriends and they were my dance partners. So I told them all to meet me down at the studio. And I took about a half hour and staged this little routine and passed the test. And the next thing you know, I'm the co-host of the show. I'm dancing on the show. And I'm choreographing the show. And for four years, it went out over 110 markets all over the country. Wow. So I am now officially in the dance business, and I'm the only you know kid choreographing on television, at least in those days. And um, that's how it started. Then I moved out to California. I decided that you know it's not going to happen. I've gone as far as I can go in Cleveland. So I got in my car with 175 bucks in my pocket and drove to Las Vegas. Passed through Las Vegas and saw the billboards and said, one of these days I'm going to do a show, and my name's going to be up there on that billboard. And I went on to California, worked odd jobs, entered dance contests again, and then finally ran into Dick Clark himself at a party that he was having on Sunset Boulevard, and I walked right up to him, and he had been drinking, and I said, <laughs> Dick, you ought to have me working for you. And he was mumbling something, and they were all there, Annette Funicello and Bobby Rydell and Fabian and Frankie Avalon, all the bandstand people. It was a reunion. 
and and the secretary came up to me and said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Well, I, I want to talk to Dick." And she said, "Well," and I gave her my card, and and she said, "Well, we'll call you on Monday." Sure enough, I get a call from Dick Clark on Monday. Come into the office; we want to meet with you. And I'm thinking, "Wow, that's amazing!" Dick Clark wants to meet with me, and I walk in his office with all my productions that I want to do and all my dreams and hopes. And he says, what's all this junk? And I said, well, this is what I want to do. He said, I don't care about that. And he said, I'm doing four specials for ABC called The Rock and Roll Years. Would you like to be the choreographer? And I said, would I? So I'm now choreographing for network television for the first time. From that success, he then what? says, we're going to go to Vegas and we're going to do the first rock and roll show in Vegas. And it's now 1974. And uh, he said, that we're going to open for Elvis Presley. He's in the main room, and we're going to be the show that goes on first. I said, wow, my idol, Elvis Presley. So we get to Vegas. I, I'm directing the show. I'm dancing in the show. At that time, he called my act Jeff Kutash and the Greasy Kids. And we're doing all the old stuff from the 60s, you know, all those old dances. And I see that that there's a booth in the center of the of the of the theater, and it, and and there's a guy with sunglasses and a high collar and two bodyguards. And I said, "Oh my goodness, that that's Elvis himself! I'm going to dance for Elvis Presley. I better dance like I never danced before." So I I come out in the opening number and I do a knee slide and I hit the stage and I got so excited because of the adrenaline rush. I vaulted off the stage, wiped out a whole table full of drinks, and people. Oh. Things are flying and chairs are tripping over, and I wind up a few feet from Elvis, and he takes off his glasses, and he looks at me like, this can't be part of the show. And, of course, it wasn't, and I feel this pain in my groin. Long story short, Elvis signs autographs after the show. We hang out together, and I wind up in Sunrise Hospital in Las Vegas with a double hernia, and the doctor tells me, your dancing career's over. I said, well, I, I just opened on it. I have 30 more days. He said, uh, sign this piece of paper. If, if it doesn't work out on the operating table, you, you, know, you elected to have the surgery. I said, I'm not having surgery. So I go to a medical supply house, put on a truss for 30 days. You know what that is. It, it kind of pulls everything up. And I finished the gig in pain. And that was basically the end of my dancing career at that point. So Elvis was responsible for me ending my dancing career in 1974. But and what I was a way, what then, a way to, uh, to, to kind of take a break. I mean, it wasn't that you, it was ended, obviously, but that's amazing. And, and I'm, as I'm listening to you, uh, going from uh, the meeting of Dick Clark and then going to California, it's, you know, and then going all the way to Vegas, you had a lot of chutzpah. Well, uh, you know, I was fortunate because going backwards for a moment, when I was doing the Upbeat show for four years, James Brown, everybody was booked on that show, the Beatles, the Stones, you name it. We played every act that that came through Cleveland. James Brown finally was booked on the show, and he sees me dancing, and he walks up to me and says, how's a guy like you know how to dance like that? And I said, well, I learned it from you. And, And he said to me, do you want to be my choreographer? And I said, Absolutely. And I, from that point on, through through the next twenty years, I was James Brown's choreographer. Every time you do a new show, I'd come in and I would choreograph the dancers, and we had a long term relationship all the way through the nineties when, you know, when he played Vegas. Jeff, would you say that uh, James Brown? Because I was going to ask you, you know, who you kind of look to, and it sounds like he was somewhat of the inspiration 
for a lot of this, for a lot of your um, moving through. Well, you know, I wanted to look like Elvis, and I wanted to dance like James. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. We all, we all did. <laughs> yeah, so you got a chance to actually spend time with both of them. And also Dick Clark. You know, we, you know, when we first talked, we both realized we had somewhat of a history where we both had had an opportunity to meet with Dick Clark. That was pivotal as well for you. Well, then, then Dick asked me to come back and do the show again, uh, and they doubled uh, his marquee size and his salary, but he didn't want to pay me any more money. And I said, well, I, you know, I just did this gig for Peanuts, and I made you a hit, helped make you a hit. You know, you got to take care of me and my dance troupe. And he said, no, can't do that. So I said, well, then we can't do the show. So I went out on my own. I changed the name of the group from the Greasy Kids to the Dancing Machine off of the, you know, Jackson song. And that was the beginning of disco when it really took charge in 1974-75. And we wound up playing in discos all over the world, from San Tropez to South Africa to Japan, uh, Israel, Spain, Germany, England, everywhere. And for a number of years, the dancing machine was an attraction, an American, a legitimate American dance troupe that played all over the world. We've got a lot of listeners uh, from all over the world, and some are very young and may not even, they know of the disco era, but tell us, for those who have no idea what it felt like, what it was like, and then also just to bring back the memory for those who did experience, talk about the disco era for a minute. Well, the disco era started in the early 70s, and in, in, in actually in Paris, which is where the word came from, discotheque, which is the club. And it was where DJs were playing music and, uh, and kids were dancing. And then it came to New York with places like uh, Regines and all these wonderful uh, former band clubs that turned into dance halls now, uh, even the Palladium. And then, uh, of course, it, it culminated with Studio 54, which most people remember, which was the disco. And disco was the era where the audience was the star. There were very few disco stars. I mean, there was Donna Summer, and there was, you know, Casey and the Sunshine Band, and a few that had hit records. But, you know, disco was more of a one-off. You know, you had a hit record, then you never heard of the group again, and another one, another one. And it was the audience who was the star, because the disco stars didn't perform live. They were record uh, acts, studio acts. So for a number of years, all the way till about 1980, uh, the audience was the, you know, the stars of the disco era, and everybody was dancing, moms and dads. It was a throwback to the 60s when they did the twist, which is what revolutionized and closed the, inter- uh, you know, the generation gap, because that's when adults and kids were dancing together for the first time with a dance called the twist. And then, you know, 20 years later, same thing happened with disco. So it became a uh, a revolution. And then, of course, in 1980, it basically, disco was dead. They blew up all the disco records at, in the middle of Yankee Stadium, or Shea Stadium, rather. And uh, that was the end of the era. And that's when it evolved into breakdancing and, and, and hip-hop in the next generation. When did you um, When did you come in contact with John Travolta? Well, it was we were auditioning for Merv Griffin's show to be on television at the Dancing Machine. We're at the Roxy Theater in L.A., which is a very popular venue. And uh, Merv was there, and I'm doing my show with the Dancing Machine. I was still dancing by that at that point because I had the operation, and now my hernia was fixed so I could dance again. 
And uh, I, this kid follows me up the stairs to the dressing room because dressing rooms are upstairs. And he taps me on the shoulder and said, "I, I got to learn what you're doing, man. You got to teach me this." And I said, "Who are you?" And he said, "My name is John Travolta. I play in a show called Welcome Back, Cotter." And uh, I said, "All right, I've got a little studio down the street. What do you want? Private lessons?" He said, "Yeah." And I said, "Okay, twenty-five an hour, and for three months, me and five or six of my dance machine kids." Taught them all the moves from our routines, the spin splits, the, the knee drops, the, all the stuff that you wound up seeing a year later, which we had no idea in Saturday Night Fever. I had no idea he was doing a movie. So the movie comes out with all, my, all the stuff I staged for him and created for him, and no credit, 25 an hour, I went crazy. I called him up on the phone. I said, how could you do this to me? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I was told uh, in secrecy I couldn't say anything about the film, and I would have loved to, Jeff. And I said, well, you have to make this right, John. And he said, well, I'm doing an article for Rolling, Rolling Stone magazine. How about if I say that, you know, you guys taught me how to dance? And I said, okay, that'll work. Sure enough, the article comes out, and my career goes through the roof. A TV show, another TV show, the Grammy Awards, a record album with Casablanca, my own magazine called Stepping Out with Lawford Publications, appearances on all the talk shows, teaching everybody how to dance now, Cher, Bette Midler, and it went on and on and on. And finally, NBC calls and I get a show called The Midnight Special. And now I'm co-hosting a TV show with Wolfman Jack on the network. And it's all the dance moves. And, and, you know, the choreography of the day. And sure enough, Michael Jackson and the, and the Jackson Five are booked on the show. We're going to stop. We're going to stop right there because we're going to have to take a break. And that's a perfect place to come back to <laughs> with, with, with Michael Jackson. That's what a life. You're having an amazing life, Jeff. <laughs> we're going to take a break for commercial, but we'll be right back with choreographer, Emmy winner, and Las Vegas entrepreneur, Jeff Kutosh. If you'd like to reach us at Voice America's Why We're Here to let us know what's on your heart and mind, then kindly email us at Sharon at whywearehere.info. We'll be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Wouldn't you love to experience formidable personal transformational changes to highly benefit your life and those around you? Do you want to eradicate anything holding you back from living with focused clarity in a harmonious lifestyle of the highest of intent, vitality, and abundant well-being? Empowerment coach, energy healer, and visionary author Sharon Rose Washington is here to assist you in the revolution of your evolutionary self. In these unpredictable times, it is important to connect with one's own pure inner power base of expansive creativity heightened intuition, and radiant fulfillment. To contact visionary Sharon Rose Washington for information or to make an appointment, call 323-960-5167 or email Sharon at whywearehere.info for a free introductory consultation. For immediate empowerment coaching and energetic transformational healing services, please call 866-231-HEAL. That's 866-231-HEAL. It's time to celebrate the joyful life of the authentic origin you were meant to live. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. 
Welcome back to Why We Are Here with empowerment coach, energy healer, and visionary author Sharon Rose Washington. If you have a question about the program or would like to share a comment, please send an email to Sharon at whywearehere.info. That's Sharon at whywearehere.info. Now, back to the show. And we are back with our talented guest, Jeff Kutosh, uh, who's also known for Las Vegas uh, shows, and we'll talk about that shortly. But we, we were talking about you meeting uh, and being introduced to Michael Jackson. Tell us about that. So it's uh, circa 1979, and Michael and the Jackson 5 are on the show, and they're doing Shake Your Body Down to the Ground. That was the song, and it was a big dance song. And I'm rehearsing my dance group, the dancing machine, over in the corner, and he's watching, and he walks over to me, and he says, Jeff, I, I, I can't continue to do this stuff with my brothers anymore. It's old stuff, and I love what you guys are doing. I want to learn it. I want to learn it. I said, well, why don't you come to, you know, come to our rehearsals before we tape on Friday? We're rehearsing every day up at the church on the corner. So sure enough, he shows up in a limo the next day. And this is when he had the old nose and the old hair and the old wardrobe. He was that Michael. And uh, he sits in the corner for the first day for a few hours. And finally, I said, come on out here, Michael. If you're here, you might as well learn this stuff. So I, I, I had a group that I introduced called the Electric Boogaloo. These are five guys who I discovered literally on a street corner in Fresno. And they were doing a new dance that nobody had seen before called the Electric Boogaloo. And it was popping and locking. It was a revolutionary style of dance that really changed the street dance genre forever and to this day is still you know the uh, the basis of a lot of of what you see street break dancing and he learns from pop and pete the backslide he learns from scally the old man the, all the all the dance moves had names and he he was great he learned all these moves and then we don't hear from him we do the show and a year and a half two years later all of a sudden it's Motown 25, the new Michael with the new hair, the new wardrobe, the new everything, the new nose, and he's doing this move that Pop and Pete taught him at our rehearsal that he called then, of course, the moonwalk, which was the backslide, and the rest is history. So that was our Michael Jackson connection, and then probably about a year later, that was when it was the end of disco, right around that time period, 1980, and that's when B-Boy dancing and break dancing and hip hop and all of that changed the landscape. Wow. You know, dance is interpretive of music. Do you feel uh, that dance is kind of lost now? Well, what happened with hip hop is it was a very af- is a very athletic, almost calisthenic type of dance, and they're hardcore moves that the average kid can't do. And I mean, unless you're really a good dancer uh, or a dancer, you know, by nature, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to accomplish, and it's not really that much fun to do because it's a lot of work. Yet, of course, it's very, very terrific to watch if you can do it, especially break dancing. But you know, who can do that uh, unless you're an athlete? So for period of time, the, the dance bit, business went from social dancing to hardcore street dancing uh, and competition in dance groups. They were battling against each other, so it, it, it evolved. And uh, at that time, I had to stay on top of it, so I hooked up with a guy named Mr. Freeze, who was in the movie Flashdance. And he was the kid with the umbrella, and he was one of the original New York City B-boys. And I 
rolled him into the dancing machine troupe, and we toured all over Europe, now doing flash dancing, break dancing, and what then became the hip-hop world. But there was no money to be made anymore, and nobody really wanted to see dance troops, so I had to go back to my roots in Las Vegas. And I contacted a guy named Steve Wynn, who booked me at his hotel, the Golden Nugget, and I introduced the dancing machine, and we became a strip attraction, meaning Las Vegas strip attraction, won the Lounge Act of the Year, and again, had a whole nother incarnation. And that's when Vegas decided that they wanted to contemporize. So I threw my hat in the ring at a hotel called the Riviera uh, to produce the first real contemporary dance show that Las Vegas has ever seen, and I called it Splash. And in the mid-'80s, we opened with the first water show and street dance show that Vegas had ever seen with pyrotechnics and moving lights and aquariums and and things that they had never seen before. And what turned out to be a four-week engagement with options, the show ran for 21 years and basically changed the face of Las Vegas. You took it to a whole other level. And uh, that's an award-winning show, right? Yeah, we well, we won you know a dozen or so of the Vegas Show of the Year awards and put hundreds of street dancers to work, which was great. And it was really a, a, it was like the dance machine on steroids, so to speak. I mean, it was just a much larger version of the same thing that worked for us for the previous ten or fifteen years. Yeah, I have a quote where you say, "Music without dance is only half the story." And um, I found another quote by a dance master named Victor Sylvester, and in his book. Uh, modern ballroom dancing. He states, the desire to move in response to emotion is a physiological fact which will survive no matter how it may be suppressed as long as people exist. The persistence of rhythm and its intimate association with sex and life itself is undeniable. And when rhythm and movement come together, dance is born. Talk about your intimacy with uh, with dance and well, that, that's a great quote, and, and basically, what what it, I think it means is that it's an expression of your, you know, your spirit and your soul. And whether you dance great or you don't dance great, you're feeling it, so it doesn't really matter because it's, you know, it's very very introspective. You're enjoying yourself. Um, the the take I had on dancing because I never took lessons and I didn't like the rigid world of learn the steps and do what everybody else did before you because there are those that are going to be better and not as good but it doesn't matter because it's the same material you're doing ballet you're doing jazz you're doing you know whatever the dancing is I I love the interpretation of the music and that's what built my career so instead of taking dance lessons I studied old Busby Berkeley movies and watched the patterns and I studied military patterns that the the government does you know with the armed forces and I and and I basically created what I guess you would call the choreography uh, around that kind of mindset but then the moves themselves only can come from the music what are the drums telling you to do what are the horns telling you to do when the strings come in what do you do and it's almost like you're a, a an orchestra leader conducting your body yeah wow what what motivates you? Because you've got so much energy, you have such an amazing legacy, and you're not done. What motivates you, Jeff? 
Well, it's it's always been to see these young kids, which I certainly was at that time, get to have their yeah, you get to see their dream come true. You know, it's one thing to do something for fun, and then you don't make any money with it, and you can only phone it in once in a while when you have the time. And it's another thing if you can make a lifestyle out of it, like musicians do. And now, these days, I mean, on your computer, you can create a whole orchestra, and you can write your own music and publish your own music or your own book or whatever. In those days, it wasn't like that. But what motivates me is the fact that, um, you know, I can give an opportunity to a young person to explore that talent where they may have been stifled had they had to just, you know, continue on in college and get a job somewhere and leave their passion aside. Yeah, you mentioned the word passion just now, and you talked a minute ago about soul, you know, soul music, soul. What is soul to you? What does it mean to you? Well, soul goes right back to the expression. Uh, You know, the reason that soul is usually... Uh, an exponent of the um, underclass, meaning the not privileged communities, is I related to boxing because I used to be a boxer. I was a Golden Gloves kid when I was young. And that visceral joy that you get from something that doesn't cost any money and doesn't require you to have any background that you can just, again, express yourself can only come from the freedom that you create inside you. If you're locked up and you have not unleashed that freedom, you're not going to even find your soul. But if you've unleashed it, everybody has it. That's a beautiful way to put it. And what's your take on music and its capability of maybe bringing people together Because we, from all walks of life? That's something that we need right now on the planet. What is your take on that? Well, my... What I'm doing currently for the last two years, I decided with the success of Jersey Boys and Rock of Ages and some of this old school, you know, information that's coming back to a whole new generation and to remind the previous generation how much fun they really had, I I looked at at the landscape and I didn't see anything going on with soul music. So I decided to do a show called Soul Brothers, which to me is the essence of what we all are uh, as communities, as individuals, you know, uh, as a society. And the music is what drove, the soul music genres, what drove those lyrics and those melodies. And it was everything from Motown to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, to the West Coast, to the, you know, Florida. I mean, soul music transcended everything. And it was an opportunity for the African-American culture and the uh, and, and and the white culture to bridge that gap because they had a common denominator. Not only did they dance together, but they grooved together. So all of those amazing icons: James Brown, Otis Redding, Jackie Wilson, Sam Cooke, the OJ's, Barry White, Prince, Sly and the Stone. I get the chance to work with all of them, and I grew up with that essence. So I want to bring it now to a whole new generation, the way it really was in the day so that they can feel that amazing growth and magic that you know created this whole genre yeah those are some amazing names and i love how you brought it all the way forward like even with prince um because he's absolutely amazing and it's it's just awesome that you got to work with all these people let's talk about your emmy because you you won an emmy well i did i did a show called taxi which was a uh um you know, a sitcom that uh, was very iconic back in the in the seventies, and uh, you know Tony Danza, Judd Hirsch, uh, 
Danny DeVito. You, you probably a lot of people remember the show. It's still in reruns. I yes. still get checks for two dollars and twelve cents <laughs> <laughs> royalty. Uh, but um, the the show was a comedy show, and then I get a phone call saying, we want to do a dance show. We want to do Taxi as, as a dance show in one segment, and we want to do the thing with Travolta that you did you know, for Saturday Night Fever. And uh, we want you to perform in the show, and we want you to choreograph the show. And so I said, okay. And that episode, which was called Elaine's Strange Triangle, was the one show that year out of the 52 shows or however many they did from Taxi that won the Emmy and the Golden Globe. And the, and the reason was because of the, you know, the comedy element of the dancing. It's a, it was an hilarious show, and we did all the moves from you know, Travolta. So that kind of also you know, prompted a whole new genre of entertainment for me. And now I, you know, I started back into television, and uh, that's when... You know, a lot of the shows like Family and Heart to Heart and the Hanna-Barbera group and all that, uh, you know, decided to bring dance onto television as, in variety, which we haven't seen in a while except on MTV or on the award shows. Someday it'll come back, maybe soon. They'll bring back dancing on television as part of, a, of the variety, you know, show. Yeah, they, they do have a few shows on, and, and, uh, but mostly it is, you know, singing. But they do have a few of those types of shows on. Um, was dance your saving grace as a kid? Do you think growing up in the well, it, kind it, of- it kept me away from you know drugs and gang banging and all the stuff that were your options to you know to get along and make money. And this was something that was so infectious, and you loved it so much that even if you didn't make money, it didn't matter. You were doing what you loved to do. It's like a baseball player who doesn't make the, the, the varsity, but he still enjoys playing. So, yeah, it, it basically kept me from, well, kept me from getting into trouble. Have you done a lot of traveling? For instance, you know, have you been to Africa where, the like, the root of dance began, or have you been all over the world with dance? Yes, it's an interesting point, Sharon, because what happens when you finally immerse yourself is then you want to learn. And it was a little bit too late for me to start taking lessons, but I could study all the other dance styles and the amazing ethnic dance troops from Indian to, you know, Balinese to Chinese to, uh, you know, uh, the gumboot dancers in Africa, and it's amazing what you learn from all of these societies that you then can, you know, recycle with your own flavor, and and that is the true education. Is there a common denominator, like when you mentioned dance in India or China and uh, parts of Africa, is there something that you could identify with as a common denominator? It always was the rhythm. It was always interpreting the rhythm and the instruments. Because whether you're dancing to a flute or you're dancing, you know, to a timbali, that sound is what's driving your energy to do or create that move. And you're not going to dance the same way to a string section as you are to a rhythm section. Yeah. You've worked with so many people. Who stands out? Is there someone or, or a couple of people that really stand out? Well, you had a lot of great, great dancers. I mean, for me, when it comes to the street dancing, I mean, James Brown is and always will be the benchmark. Um, although today, I mean, I, I love to even see Bruno Mars. You know, he's amazing. And and Justin Timberlake and a lot of the exponents of, of that era. But when you really go back to 
uh, you know, Donald O'Connor and, and Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly, and uh, even then moving forward to Barishnikov and Nuryev in the ballet world, um, you know, there, there were icons that literally invented the style that we all have adopted, whether we realize it or not, and, you know, again, recycled into our own uh, style. Yeah. You worked, um, I, th- I think it was in Europe is what I was uh, what I ran across or told that you, you did a Sinatra review um, well, beginning we, in uh, Europe? Well, as part of what we were fortunate enough to experience with the Dance Machine, once we won a couple of awards and did all those, those TV shows, uh, Frank Sinatra, Dean Martin, Sammy Davis, uh, they all reached out and wanted us to be their opening act, and we did. Uh, they weren't all together at that time as the Rat Pack, but they were individually performing. So we got to travel the world opening with these icons. And, um, uh, you know, that was a treat because we'd come on and do 20 minutes, and uh, and then the star would come on. I'll tell you one quick story. Dean Martin, uh, you know, they always said he was a drinker, and uh, he was. <laughs> what he would do is, is they had a little tent right off, off the stage, and he would come in. Uh, his limo would drop him off at the stage door. He'd walk into his little tent, have a glass of whatever he was drinking, come out and do his show, go back to his tent, have another glass, get back in the limo, and leave. We hardly ever talked to him, hardly ever saw him. He didn't even stay at the hotel. This is at the MGM Grand back in Vegas. And one night he comes out on stage, and he gets upset because there was a heckler in the audience. And he didn't like the fact that he was being heckled, so he just dropped the microphone, walked off stage, had his drink, got in his car, and left about 10 minutes into the show. And wow. the audience is sitting there, 1,500 people saying, what the heck is this? Can't, you know, must not be part of the act. And I get a call, uh, and we're already in the dressing room, saying, hey, can you guys have any more material? You've got to come out and do another dance number. So I said, oh, well, oh. we're working on a new number. And all this happens in about a minute. And so I rush my dancers, the dance machine, back out on stage. And we tried this new number that we were rehearsing, and I go up to the lighting booth, and I'm sitting there with the lighting guy saying, okay, put the spotlight over here, and I'll tell you when to cue the curtain and all this business. And the guy hits the wrong cue button, and instead of uh, opening the curtain, he closes one of the curtains, and this is right in the middle of when the dancers are spinning uh, with the girl above his head in a like an ice skater would, and she's spinning around, and he's turning, and all of a sudden the, the curtain hits the girl's foot, and she drops down on the stage, and she no. breaks a few bones, and, <gasps> and it was like, uh, oh my goodness, what a nightmare. So, you know, it's not always roses and candy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, talk about transparency. I mean... That was something that you shared that I'm sure hardly anyone out there, unless they were there to see the performance or be involved, are aware of that and, and, and the things going on backstage in regards to Dean Martin and Sinatra and everyone. We have to take another break for a commercial, but we'll be right back with our guest, choreographer, producer, entertainer, Jeff Kutosh. And in the meantime, you'll find me on Twitter at Sharon Isis Rose. Also, email us at Sharon at info. If you have any questions, and please go to IsisRoseCreations.com on the contact page to share with us your take on why we are here. If you sign up, you may win a few gifts and prizes for being such a great listener. Everyone stay tuned for the following announcement.
Change your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. Wouldn't you love to experience formidable, personal, transformational changes to highly benefit your life and those around you? Do you want to eradicate anything holding you back from living with focused clarity in a harmonious lifestyle of the highest of intent, vitality, and abundant well-being? Empowerment coach, energy healer, and visionary author Sharon Rose Washington is here to assist you in the revolution of your evolutionary self. In these unpredictable times, it is important to connect with one's own pure inner power base of expansive creativity heightened intuition, and radiant fulfillment. To contact visionary Sharon Rose Washington for information or to make an appointment, call 323-960-5167 or email Sharon at whywearehere.info for a free introductory consultation. For immediate empowerment coaching and energetic transformational healing services, please call 866-231-HEAL. That's 866-231-HEAL. It's time to celebrate the joyful life of the authentic origin you were meant to live. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. Welcome back to Why We Are Here with empowerment coach, energy healer, and visionary author, Sharon Rose Washington. If you have a question about the program or would like to share a comment, please send an email to Sharon at whywearehere.info. That's Sharon at whywearehere.info. Now, back to the show. Hello, welcome back once again. I'm your host, Sharon Rose Washington. And we are back with our guest, a man of magical moves, Jeff Kutosh, the man who assisted in choreographing many of John Travolta's first dance moves that made him so popular in synchronizing his brand with dance early on. Jeff, we have a few questions. Are you ready? Of course. Okay. Our first question is from Kelly R. She's from Van Nuys, California. Kelly wants to know, what was it like working with the Kings? And she says, first Elvis and then Michael Jackson. She wants to know, what can you share that no one knows about either? Well, I I can only tell you that Elvis Presley was probably the most charismatic human being that certainly that I've ever met. His presence and his aura were so magical that you could feel him before he even you, before you got close to him. First of all, he was gorgeous as a male specimen, and you know he he had a look and he invented his whole uh, you know his whole uh, charisma, but. It was palpable, and he really was the king, even if he didn't open his mouth and sing a a note. And I, and I had never met anybody since or before then that had that kind of magic. Um, as far as Michael, Michael was an amazing sponge. He was able to take any form of music or dance and spin it into his own genre and make it work for him so it looked like he invented it. And I never saw anybody who was able to work that way that effectively. Uh, he was just a master of inventing himself and then reinventing himself. At what stage of um, Elvis's career did you get to meet him? What, what age or what time in his life? 
Well, it was 1974. I think he, uh, I think he finally passed in 77. But it was before he gained weight and had all those problems. It was really when he was at his prime at the uh, uh, Las Vegas International Hotel in Vegas. That's when you know he uh, he revolutionized Vegas. Would you say between both of them, Elvis and Michael, that entertainment was number one on their list over a personal life? Do you think? Uh. Well, def- definitely, but, you know, M- Michael was driven more than Elvis. Elvis was a product of his manager, Colonel Tom Parker, and he did what he was told, and he spread himself out very thinly. Michael was very focused. He ran his own career, and he made all the decisions, and he orchestrated his choices of what he was going to do and what he wasn't going to do, and that's why he became, you know, the king of pop is because he just uh, he just upstaged everybody who came before him, including Elvis, in terms of his uh, worldwide appeal. You know, Elvis never played Europe. Oh, okay. Uh, the next question, thank you for that. Uh, the next question is from Carmen H. Uh, Carmen is from New Jersey. She wants to know if the song Dancing Machine uh, by the Jackson 5 inspired you to create the show and dance group, you had a dance group called Dance Machine, or did you possibly influence the Jacksons since at some point uh, you worked with the great Michael Jackson? No, it was Michael that inspired me and the Jacksons. Um, the Dance Machine was just such a great song, and it really embodied what I was trying to accomplish with my career. I couldn't think of a better title to call a dance group, so I really got it from Michael. Did they tour? I mean, they were on television as well, right? Oh, yeah. The Jacksons were, you know, at that point, uh, they went from little kids to teenagers to now approaching, you know, 21 years old, and they were all becoming adults. Okay, we have a question from Richie D. Richie D. is from Brooklyn. He says that dance, including, I take it he's a dancer, dance including any forms of pop locking, hip-hop, breakdance, even freestyle originated, oh, he's saying it originated on the East Coast, and he says that the West Coast are imitators. He wants to hear your opinion. <laughs> and he also wants to know, did you participate in dance battles where you're from back in the day? That's very interesting. What a great question. And it, and it has been a point of controversy for many years. And because I'm, I was there at the beginning before anybody was doing that back in the old days in the 60s in Cleveland, I can tell you how the dance movement evolved, meaning the street dance movement. And uh, it, it really did begin on the West Coast in terms of popping and locking. And the two groups that created it were the Lockers and the Electric Boogaloo. And the Lockers did all of the locking moves, the, the knee drops and the, you know, all the stuff that you saw on Saturday Night Live back in the day. And when the Lockers had their own TV show, they were street kids from California, from Los Angeles, who again came out of the dance contest culture in the early 70s at a place called Mavericks Flats. And Mavericks Flats is where all the dance contests and all the dancers hung out. Crenshaw, Crenshaw Boulevard. Crenshaw. That's right. And then in those days, they weren't really doing that in New York. Now, there were some rumblings in New York in the early 70s, which started the prelude to breakdancing and b-boying and all of what happened seven or eight years later when Cool Herc and African Bombada and that whole genre started the mushroom, and then the East Coast 
completely took over uh, you know, the, the dance genre. But it really, popping and locking started on the West Coast, and then all the B-Boy stuff really started on the East Coast. Okay, so Richie D, it's West Coast. And and uh, did you participate in dance battles? I think was the other part of Richie D's question. Well, you know, I did when I was when I was back in the day in Cleveland, but but in terms of uh the the real dance battles, it was dance troupe against dance troupe. And so my dance machine battled a lot of different dance groups including the Lockers uh, and the uh uh, the Funky Bunch, and, you know, they all had great names, just like, you know, America's Best Dance Crew has all these names, and they battle each other while we were doing it, uh, you know, back in the uh, in the 70s. You know, there was a, as I think about it, I get these images, you know, of, of style of clothing. Were you a part of all of that, the, the wearing of the bell bottoms and, and all of that? Well, that's interesting, Sharon, because the two other elements that were part of the culture that actually influenced the culture were the vernacular, the dialogue, the the expressions, the language that was kind of a code, and also the fashions, because the fashions drove a lot of the moves that you did. You know, if you're not wearing the right outfit or the right shoes, you can't dance properly. That makes a lot of sense. Okay. We have a question from Marcia M. She is from San Diego, California. Marcia wants to mention that she's a huge fan of John Travolta. And she was in Las Vegas, um, she says around 1980, and she saw a Saturday Night Fever review. Were you involved with that show, she wants to know. Uh, No, I was not. I don't remember a Saturday Night Review show. And I'm pretty tuned into Vegas. I would like to know what, maybe if she had a little more information, maybe there was a Saturday Night Fever number, but I don't remember a show because it would have been hard to get the rights from Robert Stigwood because they own all the rights to Saturday Night Fever. Okay. Well, I'll send another um, message out to her and see if she can follow up with it. And we have one more question. It's from Juliet D. Juliet's from Atlanta. And she wants to know if you're still teaching and are you still coming up with new innovative dance moves? Well, that's another great question. Thank you, Julia. Uh, the answer is yes. I'm actually touring with speaking engagements at at uh, colleges and at, and for corporation events, corporate events, telling the story of the evolution of street dance and the music. And as you indicated earlier, Sharon, uh, music without dance is, is really only half the story. Um, and in terms of te- teaching, every once in a while I'll do a master class in Vegas or in uh, New York or in Atlanta. And, uh, you know, come back with video of all the old stuff because I'm a pack rat. I saved everything. I have the video from the beginning of the 60s with all those dances all the way through the 70s and the dance contest and the whole evolution of the genre. You're actually a walking archive. or Better yet, <laughs> better yet Jeff, wait a minute. You're a dancing archive. <laughs> well done. And since you mentioned your lectures and so forth, and you've had a lot of prestigious people attend your lectures um, that I can remember, but what, where can any of our audience locate you for information on some of your upcoming projects and lectures? Well, um, I guess the best way, I, I um, have a, an email uh, that they can reach me at if they want information and, you know, events that are coming up or if they'd like to, uh, you know, schedule something. I'm at uh, JK Group, G-R-O-U-P, L 
v like Las Vegas at yahoo.com jk group lv at yahoo.com Okay, remember, this is an international broadcast show, so you'll be receiving messages from all over the world. Jeff, what's your take on why we are here? Well, I would have to say that eventually your heart tells you whether you learn it at five years old or you learn it at 75 years old, why you believe what you believe and what motivates you to do the things that you do. And I think the why we are here finally becomes an answer that comes through you when you determine what it is that you want to do over and over again that makes you happy. That's beautiful. If you could press pause on your life, just anywhere, where would you press pause and hang out for a while? Oh, my. You know, I had so many pause buttons, Sharon, but I would I would have to say that it was the 60s was probably the most innovative era that I lived through musically, fashion-wise, politically, socially, and to go back and, you know, see that massive transition uh, from, from, you know, the previous generation to our rock and roll generation was just, a, a, you know, a watershed moment. Give us a picture. Give us a picture of something going on in the 60s where you'd pause. Well, I would I would uh, go to New York. I would take a bus to New York every chance I could get when I was 17, 18 years old, and I would want to see the new fashions in and, and, and Greenwich Village. And then I would go take a trip to San Francisco and see all the, the new hippie movement and what they were doing um, you know, politically speaking and, and, and education-wise. And then, you know, and then you, you would go to Chicago or you would go to Florida and you would feel the, the, all the new dances and the new clubs that were opening. And it was just a, the, the revolution was happening where, where entertainment and culture were becoming married and we were all involved in it instead of just fragmented. Who are some of the artists, meaning if you think of you dancing, who were some of the artists that were that were out at that time that you appreciated? Well, I loved back in the in the sixties. I loved Jackie Wilson, who was the you know Michael Jackson before he was Michael Jackson. Uh, of course, James Brown. But then there was you know there was the whole West Coast movement coming in, and then there was the New York movement, and you had the Vanilla Fudge, and you had Buffalo Springfield, and you had Van Morrison. Then you had the Jefferson Airplane, and 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 the Sly and the Family Stone. And there was, and every week, it was almost like every week a new act would come out and a new style. And that's different than now. Now, maybe every few months you'll see something fresh and new uh, come out, and we all get behind it. You know, whether it's Alaya, uh, 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 I can't remember her last name, um, uh, you know, or Ariana, or uh, or Bruno, or, or or you know Sam Smith or whatever. And uh, you know, those are far and few between. In those days, it was every single week there was a different new artist and a different new song style. I have one more question before we close. I'm in love with the Matrix movies, and I ask this question of everyone. Do you take the red pill or the blue pill, Jeff? I'm sorry, what kind of movies? The Matrix. Oh, the Matrix movie? You know what? I don't take any kind of pills. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Jeff, thank you so much for coming on. And now for my final thought. 
My celebrated guest today, Jeff Kutosh, is not just behind the smoke and mirrors. He is someone who works his magic to create the smoke and mirrors. Dancing is one of the most primitive instincts of woman and mankind. Older than any of our activities, but for eating, drinking, and love. Rhythm is the basis of dance. Rhythm is life. Long before we verbalized our thoughts and desires through speech, we communicated through signs and body movement in dance. The incomparable Jeff Kutosh is someone who has helped to keep the spirit of dance alive and in living color in all of our hearts, souls, and minds. We all have to take a moment to pause in wonder and to pontificate on why we are here. No life is meaningless. No breath is wasted. We are all a beautiful, intricate part of creation making life happen. Please keep me in your heart, and I promise to always keep you in mind. Remember, the kingdom, queendom lies within. Stay rooted in Mother Earth, lifted by Father Sky, as you continue to walk side by side with the ancestors and angels. Have an enchanting evening. I'm your host, empowerment coach, healer, and visionary author, Sharon Rose Washington. We hope you've enjoyed listening to visionary author Sharon Rose Washington and her insightful luminary guest. Please join us for another powerfully transformative show next Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on Why We Are Here on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For questions, information, and appointments, Sharon can be reached at Sharon at whywearehere.info. Or for direct empowerment coaching and healing, call 866-231-HEAL. That's 866-231-HEAL. Keep your life.